Lee Strobel is a New York Times best-selling author with over 14 million sold, including his most notable book, The Case for Christ. He was a journalist for 14 years at the Chicago Tribune and other newspapers, and he's currently serving as founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado University. Lee, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me, Kurt. What, what, what an honor. You know, your book, Case for Christ, was something that meant so much to me oh. as a new believer. That's awesome. Because I came out of atheism uh, myself, yeah. just as you did. Yeah. And uh, today I refer to myself as a recovering atheist. Right. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I even have a shirt that says <laughs> recovering atheist. And, uh, and, and it's not easy to recover from yeah. the belief True. that God does not exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, what gave you mm. the conviction early on in your life that there was no God? Well, I just thought the mere concept of an all-loving, all-knowing creator of the universe was just kind of absurd on the surface of it. I thought the uh, idea that uh, uh, God created people was probably not true, but the people created God because they're afraid of death. So they made up this idea Mm. of a a supernatural uh, being and an afterlife to make themselves feel better about dying. That's what I thought. Now, I I tend to be a skeptic because that's my background, journalism and law. And um, so I think that fed into it as well. Yeah, me too. And that, that was my thought as a young man. My father was a school teacher. My grandparents were school teachers. I loved history. I loved math. I loved science. And so I wanted facts. I wanted yeah. evidence. And so yes. the idea of a God seemed to me, like you said, was a crutch for allegedly weak people yeah. who couldn't answer big questions and it made them feel better. Exactly right. And um, um, so I took kind of three steps into atheism. First, first step was when I was in middle school. I started asking those embarrassing questions like, why would a loving God allow pain and suffering? You know, Why would God send people to hell? And nobody wanted to talk about it. So I thought, oh, I get it. They don't want to talk about it because there's no good answers. Then I got right. into high school. Then I learned that Darwinism explains the origin and diversity of life. So God's out of a job. Then I went to the University of Missouri and I took a course on the historical Jesus from an atheist. And he taught me you can't trust what the New Testament tells you about Jesus. So those are kind of my three steps that cemented me uh, into my atheism. So you matured and, and were, were well-rooted in your oh, atheism. Yeah. And, and professionally, you're a journalist. And yeah. so you uh, are trained to ask questions, right. to dig deeper and not just believe what you're told on the surface. Right. What what caused you to go so deeply into investigating with um, skeptical questions, Christianity? My wife was an agnostic. She didn't know what to believe about God. And she met a woman who was a nurse and a Christian. They became best friends. Leslie, my wife, asked questions, went to church with her. And then she gave me the worst news that an atheist husband could get. She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. And I thought, oh, no. First word that went through my mind was a divorce. I was going to walk out. But then I thought, you know, what if I could rescue her from this cult? You know, if I could just disprove the resurrection of Jesus, then I could pull the rug out from under this whole thing and get my wife back and get our whole life back. And so that's what prompted me to take my journalism training and my legal training. And I ended up spending two years of my life uh, systematically investigating what is the historical evidence for Jesus or lack of it or lack of it and his resurrection. Was one of your concerns also when your wife came to you and said, now I'm a follower of Jesus, that this was going to um, just uh, cause all of the fun in your marriage and your life to evaporate? Exactly. Like she's going to be this holy religious person now? No, and, and all of a sudden, the, you know, yeah. the, there's no more fun weekends? Yeah, I mean, I was a hedonist. 
because I figured if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, the most logical way for me to live my life would be as someone who just pursued pleasure. And so I was living a very immoral life, drunken, profane, narcissistic, self-absorbed. I mean, that was my life. And uh, it affected our family. I remember my daughter, uh, if she, when she was little, you know, a toddler, if she was playing with some toys and she heard me come home from work through the front door, she would just gather her toys Ugh. and go in the room and shut the door. She gonna be drunk again? You know, she gonna be yelling and screaming. And so it, this affected our entire, our entire family. Um, and when my wife came to faith, uh, I began to see positive things in her values, in her character mm. and so forth, the way she related to me and the children. And it was like looking into a mirror and it, it accentuated my sin. It made me feel less than because I'm watching her and she's kind of growing in this kind of positive way. And I, I think, what about me? You know, what does this mean for me? Is she going to judge me? Is she yeah. going to look down on me? Sometimes I've, I've, I've seen people have a spouse or a close friend yeah. come to faith and all of a sudden there's this anger yes. that wells up inside. Almost like, what are you, like you said, are you going to judge me? Oh, you're, now you're too good for me? Are we not? Uh, you're going to places I can't go and I'm going to be left out. This is going right. to change our relationship. Exactly, exactly. I thought this was going to be the end of our marriage. And um, so I spent, as I said, two years checking this stuff out because even I, as an atheist, recognize that the resurrection is the bedrock of Christianity. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Now, when you were living in this... Um, uh uh, sea of hedonism. Yeah. Uh, were you enjoying that? I loved it. You loved it. So even though you're drunk, even though your yeah. daughter doesn't want to see you and yeah. she'd rather play with her toys, yeah. even though your wife is looking at you saying, I found something so much better, yeah. you're still loving this? Or are you sensing that she actually has discovered something that I need? Well, as she grew in her faith and I began to see the positive impact on her, her values, her character, the way she related to me and the children, then I began to feel this conviction that maybe what the, the lifestyle I was living maybe wasn't the optimum way to live. Um, and maybe getting drunk on the weekend, um, maybe I could even find a, a different kind of hobby that was a little more constructive and so forth. So uh, it is true that as she um, grew in her um, devotion to Christ, it was accentuating to me my, um, uh, you know, the depth of my depravity. And I didn't want to face that. I, 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 didn't, I wanted to ignore it. I wanted to paper it over. I, I wanted to pretend I was a great guy. But there's two ways to go there. You, you, you can either say, my wife is into something that is uh, a fairy tale yeah. and uh, at, at worst case could be dangerous. Mm. You know, maybe a mental illness. She's believing in things that are not true. She's hallucinating. Um, but there's also the chance that what she believes is maybe true. Yeah. I mean, for thousands of years, Christians have believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So you decided to take your investigative skills yeah. and go for the jugular of Christianity. Yeah, because I, I, I was a journalist at the Chicago Tribune. I'd say plenty of dead bodies, and, and I've never seen a dead body come back to life after three days. So I figured, come on, give me a long weekend, and I can disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. It just doesn't happen, because I was a materialist. In other words, someone who just believed all there is is that we, what we touch and, and, right. and see. Um, and, and there is no supernatural, there is no God, and consequently, dead bodies do not return to life. I, I honestly thought I could disprove it in a weekend. Now, now, were you settled, when you look back, were you settled on that, um, or were you wanting 
for Christianity to be false so that you could continue in your hedonism. Or, or there's another option was, were you secretly hoping that maybe there was a God out there that gave meaning and purpose and direction to your life? There was a push and a pull. In other words, I was being gently pulled toward Christianity because I could see my wife and these positive these good changes things that were these happening. good things that were happening. And it, and but it, it was, was like pie in the sky, too good to be true yeah, fairy and then, tale. And then the other side was, wait a minute, you know, I want the old Leslie back. I want her old life back. I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't the deal. Uh, I want the old life back. And, and so there was a push and there was a pull at the same time. So I figured I'm going to be like an umpire in a baseball game. I'm gonna call a ball a ball and a strike a strike. I'm gonna investigate the evidence as honestly as I can, and I'm gonna evaluate it, and in the end, I'm gonna reach a verdict based on the evidence I uncover. This is kind of a tall order because what you were attempting to do is to prove that something that allegedly happened, the resurrection of Christ, yeah. thousands of years ago yeah. actually never occurred. Right. How do you find evidence of yeah. something that doesn't exist? Well, there are techniques you can use to investigate any ancient writing. So uh, whether it's Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius, you can take these same investigative techniques and apply them to the pages of the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? So there are a lot of historical um, um, guides that you can use to try to uh, diagnose whether or not the writer of the Gospels, for instance, is being honest when they report what they're reporting. I'll give you an example. There's a criterion called the criterion of embarrassment. Um, what that means is if you're reading an ancient writing and the author is saying something that hurts their own case or is embarrassing to themselves, they're probably telling the truth because if they're going to make it up, they wouldn't make up something that was going to hurt their own case or embarrass themselves. Mm. And so I read the Gospels. And guess who discovers the empty tomb of Jesus? Women. Well, wait a minute. In first century Jewish and Roman culture, women were not considered to be reliable purveyors of information. They generally weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. They weren't considered to be credible. And so it was embarrassing in the first century to say that a woman discovered the tomb empty. Um, if you're going to make it up, you would have said John discovered the tomb empty, Peter discovered the tomb empty. That would have given it extra credibility. So why do the Gospels say that women discover the tomb empty when it hurts their case? And in fact, in the second century, there were opponents of Christianity who criticized it by saying, oh, you can't trust that, women discover the tomb empty. So why did they say that? The conclusion is they're telling the truth. That's what happened, and they're reporting it um, because they're letting the chips fall where they may. That's fascinating because as a guy who appreciates science and the yeah. scientific method, yeah. I had to discover what you're saying, mm -hmm. which is that historical events have to be proven yes. or disproven differently than, say, the law of gravity. Right. I can't um, prove that... Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, wrote the Gettysburg Address or was the, the 16th president of the United States in the same way that I prove um, the law of inertia. Right. I, I, I have to use different criteria. Exactly. And it's still scientific, yeah. but uh, it's a different discipline, and you're actually an it expert is. at that kind of thing. I mean, it is. It's, it's a different discipline, but it's equally uh, credible and reliable. So in other words, you look at things like um, this document. Uh, how long was it written after the events that yeah. it's reporting on? Is it immediate or is it 200 years later? Because you can have legend grow up in the interim and, and color what's been eventually written down. Um, are these eyewitnesses? 
or, or are these people who weren't in a position to actually see what they're reporting on? Um, how many people are reporting on something? So there's all these things you can look at to try to say, are these ancient writings telling me what really occurred? And while that doesn't give us an airtight case that we might like to have, say, with the law of gravity yeah. or something like that, I find it fascinating that the only way we can believe any ancient documents as trustworthy and reliable is by using this set of standards. Right. And if we're going to believe ancient documents exactly. like the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, these things that nobody questions yes. in terms of their authorship, their authenticity, uh, then those same standards should be applied to the Bible. Exactly right. Uh, for instance, most of what we believe is true about the ancient world, most of those facts are based on one source or maybe two sources. And yet, for exa example, um, um, to, we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. That's an avalanche of historical data. Historians drool over this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so we have, when you use the test that you would use for any other ancient document, don't, don't do anything special um, because it's uh, religious issues. Let's just use the same investigative techniques. That's right. And when you do, you walk away convinced, wait a minute, this is what really happened. Lee, you set out to disprove the resurrection. Right. Because if the resurrection is false, that, that, that's, the, that's the, the king claim exactly. of Christianity is that a man rose from the grave. Yeah, because anybody can claim to be, you could claim to be God, I could claim to be God. Yeah. And Jesus got up before a group and he says, I and the Father are one. And the word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying I and the Father are the same person. He was saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And the audience understood who he was saying because they said, you, you're just a man. You're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God, but so what? Anybody can do that. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? And not only that, I, I've read in your books like uh, The Case for Christ and others that it wasn't just the biographies of Jesus written by his disciples yeah. and those inside the Bible, but accounts of Jesus' life written by those outside the Bible who were not fans of Christianity. There are actually 110 facts about the life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus in ancient sources outside the Bible, documented by uh, the historian uh, Dr. Gary Habermas in his book, The Verdict of History. Mm. Um, and so he goes through all these. These are um, references to Jesus in documents that um, do, you know, are not part of what we would consider to be Holy Scripture. Lee, much of the evidence about the claims of Jesus, yeah. including his resurrection, comes from accounts within the Bible itself. Right. So those writers of the Bible are biased, aren't they? Mm. Good question. Um, for me, when I investigated uh, as a skeptic, as an atheist, the ancient evidence for Jesus and his resurrection, um, I did not give the Bible any special credence. I didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the word of God. I do now, but I was a skeptic then. But I had to accept the pages of the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical writings. And just as you can investigate any ancient writing, you can take those same investigative techniques and apply them to those pages to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? Now, the question of whether or not the authors are biased, well, um, anybody who reaches a conclusion based on their experience and what they see and what they know to be true uh, is going to have a point of view. 
And, um, um, but we can look at sources that uh, go beyond the Bible and we can see confirmation of many of the key and, and salient points about the life teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the story of Saul of Tarsus yes. going from a Pharisee who was persecuting and killing Christians, rounding right. them up yep. and exterminating them, why in the world would he reverse course and now become one of the most important followers of Christ and write two-thirds of the New Testament. Yeah, it what would, was in it for him if that wasn't true? That's exactly right. I mean, if you remove the resurrection, there's no motivation that makes sense to turn Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. You can't find a good motive. Exactly, exactly. Makes no sense. What about this, Lee? Some would say that the accounts of Jesus written in the Bible mm -hmm were written decades after those events occurred. Yeah. So you're talking 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, these guys are writing about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Yeah. Is that too much time to go by? I mean, I, I have a hard time remembering what my wife told me to get at the grocery store last night. If you're talking 10 years or 20 years from now, uh, could they have mis misremembered the stuff that happened? That's a good question. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace, who you may know, is a uh, cold case homicide investigator, was an atheist and became a Christian because he investigated the evidence. And one of the things he told me, he said, Lee, um, um, what did you do last um, August 12th? I have no idea what I did last August 12th. What did you do on August 12th, 1982? I have no idea what I did on August 12th, 1982. What did you do on August 12th, 1972? Oh, I can tell you the whole thing. I can go through the whole day because that's the day I got married. And so when something amazing happens to you, life-changing like a resurrection, like someone walking on water, like someone turning water into wine, mm. when, when, when you experience something extraordinary, you remember that. And uh, so th that would be true of the disciples. Now, keep in mind that they wrote the New Testament, the, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, within a generation. And um, A.N. Sherwin-White, the famous uh, historian, said that the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. Mm. So uh, this is within the parameters of being reliable, uh, historically speaking. But here's the, here's the kicker, and this is what, it, more than anything else, brought me to faith. We have some information preserved for us that can be dated back so early, you cannot write it off as being a legend. Because we know the Apostle Paul was Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus, he has this encounter with the risen Jesus, he becomes the Apostle Paul. Immediately he goes into Damascus and he meets some apostles. Many people believe this is when he was given a creed, a, an eyewitness-based creed of the early church that he later sent to the church in Corinth. Other people say it was three years later when he went to Jerusalem and he met with two eyewitnesses, Peter and James, who were named in this creed as eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Um, but either way, this means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, a report about the resurrection was already in existence. The beliefs that make that up go back even earlier. So in other words, we have preserved for us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, a creed, an eyewitness-based creed of the earliest Christians. Right there in the first century, it says that Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared. 
We can date that creed back to within months of the death of Jesus. One of the great historians, um, James D.G. Dunn said, this creed, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as a creed within months of the death of Jesus. So there's no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. We got a newsflash, goes right back to the beginning. There have been claims of other Jewish men identifying as the Messiah. Yes, As the, 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 the coming of the promised one, the anointed one. Right. There are people through history who've made the claim that they are the Messiah. Nobody except Jesus, though, fulfills the ancient prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, prophecies that included things like how he would be born of a virgin, um, his ancestry, um, how he would die, the time frame in which he would die. Um, things that only he could fulfill. In fact, if Jesus is not the Messiah, there will never be a Messiah because nobody can go back and fulfill things that needed to be fulfilled before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. There were certain prophecies that had to be fulfilled before then. There had to be a return to the temple um, by the Messiah. Um, and, and that can't happen today. So if Jesus isn't the Messiah, there never will be a Messiah. A man rose from the dead. I mean, that change, if that's true, yeah. that changes everything. Absolutely. It proves that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. It means he's still alive today, which means we can encounter him and have a relationship with him. It means that because he was resurrected, we can be resurrected and spend eternity with him in heaven. It means everything. At least some people say that he didn't really die. How about yeah. that? How about the idea that he just passed out yeah. and that he had fainted because of blood loss, heat stroke, whatever it was, yeah. and he was, he was placed in a tomb and then he revived? That was a common objection back in the 1800s and earlier. It's no longer articulated by skeptics because it just doesn't make sense. First of all, we have no evidence anywhere of anyone ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Uh, secondly, even a source as unbiased as the Journal of the American Medical Association, a secular, scientific, peer-reviewed medical journal carried an investigation into the death of Jesus, and this was their conclusion, quote, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. You know, most of what mm. we know about the ancient world is based on one or two sources, but for the death of Jesus, we not only have multiple sources in the pages of the New Testament, We've also got five ancient sources outside the Bible that confirm that he died. Uh, Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. Tassus, another early historian. Mer Bar Serapion, Lucian. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that he was executed. I mean, this is so well established of an historical fact. You can go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman, and he'll tell you this, quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. In, now, you know, you think about ancient history, there's not a lot of facts about ancient history that a skeptical atheist scholar like Gerd Ludeman will say is indisputable. One of them is the death of Jesus. He was truly dead after being executed. So, so you were right. If you want to put the stake in the heart of Christianity, yeah. all you have to do is demonstrate that not only Jesus died, yes. but that he stayed there. Exactly, exactly. It, it, Lee, l let me ask you, did you find your belief in the resurrection as the result of one key piece of evidence or was it something that uh, accumulated over time? Yeah, it really was what I call a cumulative case. So I look at um, what I call the four E's. 
Um, and things like the execution of Jesus, the fact that, as he said, he's truly dead. The early accounts of Jesus come too quickly to be legend. The empty tomb of Jesus and the eyewitnesses. And when you mm-hmm. put all those together, I think the case is clear and compelling that Jesus didn't just claim to be God, he backed it up by returning from the dead. I, I love acronyms <laughs> and I love alliteration. So, do so I. you have four E's, yeah. it helps us to remember. Yeah. And Easter's coming up. Yes. And so uh, this is a maybe a good thing for us to remember sure. when we're talking to people about the reality of the resurrection. So the first yes. one you talked about, execution. Right. Jesus was executed right. by crucifixion. Right, and we just talked about the evidence for that, which is overwhelming, that indeed he was dead after being crucified. Uh, crucifixion, uh, they had to invent a new word to describe the torture of crucifixion. The word excruciating is from the Latin. It means out of the cross. They had to invent the word excruciating. It was the worst form of torture because it's uh, essentially a agonizing death by suffocation, by asphyxiation. Mm. Uh, so first he was whipped. Um, and, and let me quote to you an eyewitness account to a Roman flogging. It said, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were laid open to exposure. So he was in hypovolemic shock, great shock from loss of blood after the beating. And then he's crucified. And when you're hanging on the cross, it locks your lungs into the inhale position so you can't breathe. The only way you can continue to breathe is to push up. Well, now you got spiked through your feet and your bloody back is scraping against the coarse wood of the cross. You have to push up to relieve the stress so you can exhale, inhale, settle down on the cross. You keep going through that motion till you can't do it anymore. And you, in a sense, uh, suffer uh, heart failure from asphyxiation. You cannot breathe. You can't fake that, by the way. You can't fake asphyxiation. So Jesus was truly dead in a horrific way. Wow. So that's our first E, yes. is the evidence of his execution. Right. He was truly dead. Yes. Uh, the second one, you yeah. talk about uh, early accounts. Yes. Uh, what, what is the first report that we have that Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah, the first report comes in a um, letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. We call it First Corinthians. And people can look it up, First Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, where Paul reminds the Corinthians, I already gave you this, this is a creed of the first Christians, right from the first century, based on eyewitness accounts that said that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, on the third day he rose from the dead, and then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared, including 500 people at once. Um, And it mentions Peter, it mentions James, and so forth. Um, So this report has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus, within months. That, and therefore the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier. We're talking about something that goes back virtually to the cross itself. There's no huge time gap. People think, oh, Jesus died, and then 100 years later they came up with the idea that he rose from the dead. Baloney, we got a news flash that goes right back to the beginning, far too quick to write it off as being a legend. So I understand why execution is an important yes. evidence for the resurrection because yeah. uh, if, if he never died, then he, he couldn't have been resurrected. Right. So we have to establish that he actually died. Right. Why are the early accounts yeah. important? Great question. So that we know that it wasn't invented as a legend later? Exactly, because legends develop over time. We know that they do. Um, in fact, the great historian A.N. Sherwin-White said, the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We got a newsflash goes back to within months of his death. So that 
immediacy of that report is so important historically because it doesn't come 100 years later. It doesn't come, um, you know, 200 years later when mythology and legend can contaminate the historical record. So the earliness of that account is critically important. Why is the empty tomb so important? Well, if Jesus bodily rose from the dead, we believe this was not just a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection, um, then the tomb must be empty. And is it? Well, what we find out is when you look at history, what you find out is even the enemies of Jesus admitted it was empty. How do we know? Because we know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents of Jesus said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. They're conceding the tomb is empty. They're trying to explain how it got empty. Mm. It's like if you're a teacher and a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. That student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can t explain what happened to it. The dog right. ate it. But the question about whether or not the homework is here is, is, is settled. Exactly. The homework's not here. They're conceding the tomb is empty. So everybody in the first century, whether it was um, a supporters of Jesus or enemies of Jesus, implicitly mm. or explicitly, everybody's admitting the tomb's empty. And by the way, some people, like here was my way around this when I was an atheist. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I'll tell you why the tomb was empty. The body was never in it. Don't you know they didn't bury crucifixion victims? They allowed them to be eaten by the birds. Or they threw them to the dogs. They, they wouldn't allow the, the um, satisfaction of a burial. So uh -huh. the, the reason the tomb's empty is the body was never in it in the first place. Well, I ran up into a problem with that, and it's called archaeology. Because <laughs> guess what? Archaeologists discovered the buried bodies of crucifixion victims, at least two of them. One of them um, actually had a, the spike still through his heel bone and a piece of the olive wood of the cross still attached to it, and yet he was buried. And then just a few years ago, they found another one. So we do know that some crucifixion victims were buried. And as a matter of fact, Roman law did allow for the burial of execution victims in certain circumstances. So my explanation went out the window. And I find that that happens frequently. You'll hear these good sounding yes. arguments like, oh, uh, the, the Christianity was just a recycled version of other resurrection myths. Right, and right. then you do more research and you find out, wait a minute, that's actually not true. Yes. The Sources for the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ are dated back into the Old Testament of Scripture, which doesn't need anything outside like pagan mythology. It has everything it needs right there in the Jewish Scriptures yeah. uh, to have all of its elements. And things like this. Yes. Oh, the Romans didn't bury crucified victims. Right. It sounds good until more research, more archaeology, more, more historical investigation is done, and then you start to say, wait a minute, somebody just made that up. Exactly. I'll give you another example along those lines. Um, I used to think, and a lot of skeptics say, uh, oh, the, the appearance of Jesus risen, hallucinations. Hallucinate. They were yeah. just hallucinating. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That explains it all away. Wait a second. I'm a journalist. I check things out. I went to an expert on hallucinations, a man who was an expert on the human mind, PhD in psychology, professor of psychology for 20 years at a major Midwestern university, author of 30 books on psychology, and the president of a national association of psychologists. This guy knows his stuff. <laughs> okay. And I said, now, Dr. <clears throat> Collins, wouldn't you admit to me these disciples didn't encounter the resurrected Jesus? They merely had hallucinations. And he looked at me and said, Lee, that's not possible. I said, why not? He said, Lee, you have to understand what hallucinations are like. They're like dreams. Dreams happen in individual minds. They don't right. spread like the common cold. Hallucinations happen in individual minds. He said, your earliest report 
your most reliable historical report in the resurrection says 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at the same time, right? I said, yeah. He said, leave 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection. <laughs> and then he said, and by the way, if, this were, if these were hallucinations, the body would still be in the tomb, right? That's right. Oops, the body's gone. So there's another example of something that sounds good on the surface until you dig a little deeper. And your fourth E yeah. is eyewitnesses. Right. You have, you have eyewitnesses, and you talk about the nine ancient sources that confirm the conviction of the disciples that they really did yes. see the risen Jesus. Exactly, and it's important to understand most of what we believe about the ancient world is based on one source or two sources. So I'll, I'll ripple through those nine sources real quick. The creed that I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 that's so early, um, that's the first source. The second source is the Apostle Paul, who, said, who got to know some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, for instance. And he says in 1 Corinthians, um, whether it is I or they, we're saying the same thing. Jesus rose from the dead. So he's confirming that the disciples encountered the resurrected Jesus. Third source is the book of Acts that even atheist scholars will admit contains the summaries of teachings of the early church. And what's the teaching of the early church, the resurrection. You know, Peter gets up in the same city where Jesus had been executed just a few weeks later and says, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, a man attested to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which he did in your midst. You know that he did. He's appealing to their common knowledge. And then he says, this Jesus God raised from the dead to which we're all witnesses. And how did they react? They said, we know you're telling us the truth. What do we do? And they repented and the church was born. So there's Peter mm. confirming. The next four sources are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. There are nine appearances in those four gospels of the risen Jesus. And there's a lot of good reasons to believe that those gospels uh, contain the uh, truth about what Jesus' life teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection. But then we have two sources outside the Bible. We have writings by people who sat directly under the teachings of the eyewitnesses themselves. So for instance, Clement, he was ordained by Peter himself. And he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi in the very first century where he talked about the confidence the apostles have about Jesus being the son of God because of the resurrection that they had been eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. And then Polycarp. Polycarp was appointed by John to be bishop at the church at Smyrna. And he wrote a letter uh, in which he mentions the resurrection no fewer than five times and says the apostles, where do they get their confidence um, from the resurrection of Jesus? Because they know that he returned from the dead. So that's nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. Lee, I'm so enjoying this, this conversation. Uh, it's taking, taking me back to my early days as a newfound mm. believer. And all of the evidence that you gave was very helpful to me. Good. Actually, I, I read another book called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, which yes. was very helpful to me, and evidence that demands a verdict. And, yes. and all of this stuff is, is so important. And then the thought occurred to me, I have to die. Mm. And if I find out on the other side of my death mm. that Jesus really did resurrect yeah. from the grave, and I have not uh, responded properly to yeah. the gospel, yeah. well, then I'm still in my sins. Yes. In fact, if I find out that Jesus never resurrected from the dead, my conscience told me that I'm still in my sins. Yeah. Paul even says that. So the resurrection became personal. Yes. I 
not only believed that the evidence pointed to the truth of the resurrection, but I also saw its significance in my life. Yes, And absolutely. I needed a God to rescue me because my sin had condemned me. Yes. And I couldn't work my way out of the hole that I'd put myself in. I remember the moment when I came to that realization, November the 8th of 1981, after two years of investigating the evidence for the resurrection, I sat down and I reviewed all the evidence one last time. And then I sat back and I realized in light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism yes. than to become a Christian. Mm. And then I felt what you're talking about. All of a sudden, the depth of my sin became so apparent to me. And I realized Jesus loves me so much. He endured the torture of the cross so that we could be reconciled forever. I, that is a love that I can't fathom. But at the same time, I realized my sinfulness um, came to the forefront and I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And um, I repented of that. I turned from that. I received this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. And I, when I would receive that as I did, I became a child of God. Mm. And my life, my values, my worldview, my character, my morality, my priorities, my philosophy, my marriage, my parenting, I mean, all these things over time began to change for the good. And so you joined your wife yeah. in this belief in the resurrection. Not only that, but my daughter, remember I mentioned her, she was five years old when I came to faith. All she knew the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, coming home drunk, um, kicking holes in walls and fit of anger. I mean, I was a hedonist and narcissist. And, um, but starting on that day that I gave my life to Jesus, she started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my, something's new with my dad. Never interviewed a scholar. She's just five years old, but she could watch. She could listen as she did. And it took about four or five months. And then one day she came up to my wife, Leslie. You know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, she received this free gift of God's grace. She became a child of God. And uh, today she's married to a seminary graduate, strong follower of Jesus, writes children's books about God. And uh, my son, same thing. He saw the difference God was making in his mom and his dad and his sister, and he came to faith at a young age. He got his PhD in theology, now mm. professor of theology at wow. the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in California. Um, God, changed, God rescued my family, first of all. And he changed my son, my daughter, my wife, and then now my wife and I just recently celebrated our 50th uh, wedding anniversary. So, Wow, what a great story. It changed everything. Lee, did you ever experience a subsequent season of doubt? Mm. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers is Charles Spurgeon. Yes. And, and I've heard stories of how he would wrestle with doubts. Yeah. And in... John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Christian was on his way. He was going through the slough of despond and he was climbing the great hill and finally he releases the burden of sin. He gets saved, but then he finds himself in Doubting Castle yeah. and giant despair is just crouching over him. Yeah. Were there times, in spite of all of your evidence, that mm. you still doubted whether or not you had made a colossal mistake? I never doubted, but I had questions. So questions will come up. What's the difference? The difference is a doubt uh, erodes your soul. 
A doubt is something that you hold inside, you're afraid to even admit that you have doubts, and it begins to erode your soul. And um, a question is something comes up that you go, I don't know the answer to that, and that bothers me. But you know what, Kirk, I'm trained as a journalist. So what I do is I pick up the phone and I look up the world's leading expert on that issue, and I call him up and I said, hey, you don't know me, but I got a question. And so I do the research and, and inevitably I find answers to satisfy my heart and soul. Um, not that we have perfect resolution of every issue, uh-uh. um, but I did a book called The Case for Faith where I looked at the top eight objections of Christianity and, and, and interviewed scholars and experts to try to bring some resolution to those things. So the way I picture it is we have about 20 lines of evidence, arrows, that point toward the truth of Christianity, the resurrection, the reliability of scripture, on and on and on. And then there's these arrows that kind of go off a little half cocked, you know, like why does a loving God allow pain and suffering? And, and uh, you know, how, how does hell fit into things? And, and, and they bother you a little, they have questions about them. They don't negate these 20 lines of evidence. Yep. You know, those are still valid. But it's okay to ask questions like that. It's okay to investigate those things. Yep. It's even okay to have some doubts as long as you pursue answers. I remember Alistair Begg once had, had said that it, it appears that even with all of the scriptures that we have, God's revelation of himself, he's left some loose ends for us to deal with. Yeah. And it's best not to try to tie up loose ends that God intends to leave loose. Mm. And I think when we get to heaven, yeah. uh, perhaps then we'll understand. Well, I'm going to have my hand up. Jesus, <laughs> tell me, how does Calvinism fit in with Arminianism? And you know, I'm going to have all these questions when we get to heaven. But it's, it's logical and rational to hold certain questions in tension and say, I'm gonna get resolution of this in heaven because we have these 20 lines of evidence that point toward the truth of our faith. And I think that is important, that there, there are times where you have things that seem to be pulling in opposite directions, yeah. like the sovereignty of God and the will of man, right. uh, the love of God, and yet his, his, the concept of divine wrath. Right. And, and, and it's in the tension of these things that appear to be pulling in opposite directions that certain truths can live, and yeah. it's healthy to be there. Yeah. Um, men are so different from women, and in a marriage, you think like men are from Venus, women are from Mars, or however it goes, yeah. and, and there's this tension, but in the center of that tension, there is health, and there yes. is beauty, and there is strength. Jesus did not get angry when we asked questions. You know, look at John the Baptist. If anybody should have known the identity of Jesus being the Son of God, it was John the Baptist. He pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, I've seen and I testify, this is the Son of God. But then he gets arrested, he's in prison. Now he's got some questions. Now he's got, but what does he do? Does he wallow in that? No. He gets some friends together, says, Go track down Jesus and ask him point blank, Are you the one we've been waiting for? We'd wait for somebody else. So they go do that. How does Jesus react to that? Does Jesus say, how dare John, of all people, have the temerity to express a doubt about my identity? No. He says, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Uh. In other words, go back, tell him about the evidence you've seen with your own eyes. It convinces you that I am the one I claim to be. But here's the deal. It's after this incident that Jesus gets up before a group and he says, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. John, the guy who dared to ask a question. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts as long as you do what John did and you pursue answers. Mm, love that. The Easter season is, yeah. is upon us. Is, is, is Easter a particularly special time of year for you, oh, seeing yeah. as you were the guy who was out to destroy Easter? Right, yeah, right. Uh, it, it is a special time for me. I find that... Um, 
uh, it, I relive every year what I went through during those two years when I did my investigation of the historical evidence. And that had my, the historical, the interviews I've done with scholars and experts, like Dr. Alexander Metherell, who's the world's leading expert on the crucifixion of Jesus. I spent a day with him and he talked talk to me about what crucifixion was really like and so forth. And, and um, um, I, I will never look at Good Friday the same way, knowing the torture that Jesus endured why? Wow. Because he loves us. Wow. It's just mind-blowing. So I, I, I find that my appreciation of Easter is more robust now, having spent time researching it. Isn't that great? Isn't yeah. it great that God can take our doubts yes. or, or, or maybe, as you said, genuine questions and use that to deepen our understanding right. of what Jesus actually went through in the crucifixion yeah. and the significance of the resurrection. And it was because of your skepticism and your questions and your doubts about Christianity that led to uh, the creation of books that are now helping atheists um, with the case for Easter, the case for Christ. That's so like God to be able to do that, to take things that look like an attack mm. on the truth yeah. and actually use them. Turn them around to deepen the truth. I marvel at that. I marvel at how, you know, I had used my journalistic skills often for hurtful things when I was a, a skeptic and an atheist and how God has redeemed those yeah. interests and investigation for his glory. Um, I'm so grateful that I can do that. Lee, there may be someone who's listening to us right now um, and they're watching a clip from this interview and they're in the place that we were in. Mm. Uh, they're denying the existence of God. Um, they don't have someone to thank mm. for their heart beating at night while they're asleep or the air that they get to breathe. Yeah. Can an atheist pray yes. to a God that they don't really believe in? I and did. What, what does an atheist prayer sound like? That's a great question. I prayed at the beginning of my investigation and this is what I prayed. I said, God, I don't believe you're there. In fact, I'm convinced you're not. But if you are... That's kind of an oxymoron, I know. though. Who are you talking but, to? Well, I have nothing to lose. I, had, I figured okay. I got nothing to lose. All right. So I said, God, I don't believe you're there, uh, and I'm convinced you're not. But if you are, I would like to know you. Simple prayer. All I wasted was 10 seconds if he doesn't exist. But if he does exist, says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God rewards those who sincerely seek him. Lee, if the resurrection is true, and I believe that it is, how does that actually impact our lives day to day? Well, number one, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's the son of God. Therefore, his teachings are not just suggestions. They're commands of God himself. We ought to take them seriously. Um, if Jesus is resurrected, he's alive today. That means I can relate to him. I can pray. I can, I can experience Jesus today. It means that because he overcame the grave, so will I someday. And I'll spend eternity with him forever. Um, so there's a lot of practical implications. It means that the teachings of Jesus are the answer for how I should live my life. That's right, a basis for morality. A basis for morality, basis for decision-making. It, it just, it changes everything. I, I love how you also mentioned that he understands pain and suffering better yes. than anybody. Boy. So our deepest questions about God, why would you let this happen? He not only has the answer to those questions, he's experienced yeah. the pain of those questions. Yeah, he didn't create us and walk away. He entered into our world, suffered beyond what any of us are probably ever gonna suffer. So because he loves us so much, he said, you know what, you're a sinner. You've fallen short. You can't, go, you can't spend eternity in heaven with me. You gotta be 
uh, righteous and holy to do that. So you know what? I'll go to the cross. I'll pay the penalty you deserve for the sins that you committed. And then I can offer you forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of my grace. The greatest deal in the history of the world. I will take it upon myself to pay the penalty that you ought to be paying because of your sin. And then you can go free and you can spend eternity with me in heaven. It's the greatest, it's the greatest offer. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.